All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. Today, we are chatting with Laura, who is a professional speaker from colleges to conferences to corporations around the world to a U.S. Army base in Japan to TEDx stages in Boston to the Today Show and Good Morning America. So much there. I love it. Laura is also the Washington Post bestselling author of Limitless and the founder of Limitless Possibility, a niche consulting firm working with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, executives, and thought leaders to get them unstuck and achieve extraordinary results, which I can't wait to unpack. So welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's so great. I've so enjoyed getting to know you over the course of the last couple of months. Oh, me too. Thank you for that. Let's um, let's just, before we get into practices and your work and all of that, let's just set the stage on who you are right now. You know, so the question everyone gets is just, who are you? You know, what defines you as Laura right now? <laughs> oh, what defines me? Uh, that's such an interesting question. Such an open-ended question. It's we like start a, light on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's like Mitch Joel always starts his six pixels with like, who are you and what do you do? And you're like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm so many things to so many people. Um, so my name is Laura Gassner Odding. A lot of my friends call me LGO because Laura Gassner Odding is a lot of name. Um, <laughs> and I am uh, first and foremost a mother, a wife, a friend, a uh, I'm an athlete. Uh, I am a serial entrepreneur who is just, I am, I endlessly turned on by the audacity of the big idea and um, fascinated by what it takes to figure out how to turn your pain cave into a tunnel and come out the other side being better, bigger, stronger, faster, more of who you want to be. And mm-hmm. that really finds purchase um, in, you know, business entrepreneurship. It finds purchase in my philanthropic activity. It finds purpose in um, my political activism. So in sort of all sorts of areas of life. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I love it. I love so many. I mean, first of all, I, I really, I just wrote about pain caves probably, I don't know, maybe f- four or five months ago on a solo episode. And it was the first time I heard that terminology, actually. And it was someone, it was an ultra distance runner, I believe on Rich Roll's podcast. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about the idea of accepting or welcoming your pain caves instead. Cause we think of pain caves, right. Of just like, okay, we're going to get there and and running. If she's talking about, you know, hitting the wall. Right. Yes. Um, and in, in her case, she's like, once I could flip it to, all right, I'm here, which means I've done a lot of work to get to this point. There's still some work left and let's celebrate the pain cave and flip her mind into like a welcoming state and to get through it type thing. So, you know, anyway. it's it's such an interesting thing. I I think it takes a lot for somebody to be able to welcome the pain cave because the pain cave is hard. It's oh, yeah. awful. It's painful, right? It's it's dark. You and 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 in the pain cave all you hear is the echoing of your own voice saying you're going to fail right? So it's hard to come to a place where you're like, yeah, I got it. I'm accepting it. And so like, for me, I, um, so I ran my first mile of my life when I turned 40. 
So 10 years ago when I turned 40 and I was never athletic as a kid. I like had every okay. excuse ever to get out of PE. Like I kept them like journaled and like a little, you know, piece of paper. Like I must've, like I'm, I was like the 13 year old who had her period like every six days. Cause I was like, sorry, can't do PE today. I'm menstruating, <laughs> okay. you know, like I don't even think I had my period till I was like 16, but like, I just like any excuse I could have not to sweat <laughs> was, was what I would do. Yeah. And I grew up in Miami. So that meant I like had to not move at all, right? Like just do not move your body. <laughs> but when I turned 40, I, everything, like I'd had two kids, I'd birthed several businesses, everything just kind of hurt a little. Like I wasn't heavy. I wasn't light. I just was like, I was just kind of there. And I remember walking into my kid's school and seeing the principal and I was like, oh my God, you look amazing. Like what's, what's going on? You look amazing there. You've lost a lot of weight. Either there's a new man in your life or you've been really sick and you look way too good to have been really sick. So what's his name? And she's like, well, his name is Mike, coach Mike. And then she proceeds to drag me to this like boys and girls club basement and we do calisthenics at the end of the 45 minutes coach mike invites you to the opportunity to run a mile which means you have to run like 37 laps around this tiny little gym with these like little straws that you throw down each time and um it took me six weeks to be able to actually run a mile without like needing to lean over and you know gasp for air or puke yeah. like yeah. for real so I run the mile and then I'm all hopped up on endorphins. So I'm like, you know, if I string three of those together, I can do a 5K. So I do a 5K and then I'm all hopped up on endorphins. And I'm like, if I string two of those together, I can do a 10K. And you know where the story goes. I live in Boston. So two years later, I find myself on, you know, the starting line in Hopkinton and I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for charity, of course, because I'm slow yeah. and old and I could not qualify. <laughs> slow and old. Slow and old. Um, <laughs> so I run, I, I'm, I'm standing there and it turns out it's this crazy freak day in April and it's 92 degrees. Okay. It's never 92 degrees in April. Like sometimes it's 37 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's never 92. Yeah. So I'm standing there at the starting line and it's so hot. And I have this weird, very uninteresting, uh, non non-communicable, non-fatal health condition called vasovagal syncope, which mm. means I tend to pass out when I get dehydrated or have anxiety or, you know, things like that. And so all it's I know for from, running a marathon yeah, all in 92 degree <laughs> weather, right? So all I know is that like at mile 17, I run into a friend who points to my jog bra and is like, oh my God, those bags of ice, so smart. And I was like, where'd these come from? Like, apparently my husband stuck them in my jog bra at mile 15, but I couldn't even remember. Like that was the state of my brain. Okay. So I get to mile 20 which is halfway up Heartbreak Hill. And you've got one more big hill to go. And it's called Heartbreak Hill because of course it's where everybody's heart breaks and you're just like, I can't go on. It's, you know, you're 17 miles in. You've been running mostly downhill. You turn to go uphill. All the lactic acid is in your thighs. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And you're like, you look at Mount Everest, right? You've got four yeah. miles of uphill to go. So I'm at mile 20 and a friend of mine holds his phone up um, and he shows me on the iPhone 92 degrees. And he's like, "It is." do you realize how hot it is out here? <laughs> and meanwhile, I've been running like with yeah. my, my shoes, like, you know, melting into the pavement. And, 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 and then he says, Wesley Career just finished and he did his personal best. And I was like, what? How is that? It's so hot. How, how is it even possible? I can't do this. And he's like, I'm going to run with you. And we're running together. And what I realized in that run, first of all, is that there are two voices in your head. One voice that's like, you're going to do this. You're going to finish. You're going to like walk, crawl, cartwheel. You're going to be a marathon. Sometimes we put a, a heat sheet around your body like you're a superhero with a medal yeah. around your neck and you're going to be a marathoner for the rest of your life. <laughs> and then there's another voice that's going, what the? 
fuck are you doing? You're going to die out here. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop. It's like those cartoons we watched as a kid with like the little alarm going, blam, blam, blam. you're, like, you're going to die. And only, and you like only one of those voices gets to win. And you're the only one that gets to decide. And everyone yeah. step after step after step, you have to decide. And here's what I've realized now, 10 years later, the pain cave that Wesley had to go into to get to his personal best on that 92 degree day didn't actually look any different than my pain cave. Like totally. mine was shorter and fatter, right? But like we were both at the limits of what we could do. So yeah. I'm not at a point where I can accept it and celebrate it yet, but I'm at a point where I'm like, you know what? It's pretty cool that we all have the edge of our ability and that space where we're like nine toes over it, where we're like, I wonder what happens now. Yeah, That's what I think is cool about the pain cave is that you come out the other side of it with only one of those voices getting to win. Yeah. Well, it just it like it makes me think of some of the the work or the the research and the interviews I had to do for for my book, uh, Personal Socrates, because people were always asking, like, what 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 are the secrets and what are the tricks with the Olymp like Apollo Ono, most decorated Winter Olympian, and or the billionaire, and it's it's nothing different than what everyone else is doing. With a caveat, I mean, they're they're doing the work, right? Or they're getting past or getting past the pain cave. We're all experiencing this. We all have the same choices, right? Yes, but they and, can stay in that yeah. area of discomfort just a hair longer than everyone else, yes. right? It just, yes. it just, it's just the ability to be uncomfortable or sorry, the ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable just a little bit longer. Totally. And that's where you learn the lessons. Totally. So then, okay, so how did you get involved or come to the thinking of around the, the concepts, let's say, of being limitless or, I, you know, because I always hear and a, a lot of the work that I do is, is talking on the other side of things like identifying all your limiting of beliefs and whatnot and trying to, you know, bust those out and, and, and clear them out. Um, which I'm always curious because people come to these things at different points in their life, right? Like, what was that moment for you where you're like, Ah, limitless. Like I want to go down this journey. I want to write a book about it. I want to have a boutique kind of consulting firm or, or, or set up about this. Like that's a lot, right? Yeah. So I can tell you a perfect story that sounds like it was all really planful and that it was a strategy and that I meant for everything to happen this way. Or I can tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's stick with the first one. We can cut it up and, and, and share it on social media. No, yeah, I mean, let me tell you, hashtag blessed, right? Um, the, the key is to follow your passion. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is actually the worst advice ever. Um, do not follow your yeah. passion. Follow your curiosity, right? Like, like, yeah. be prepared to fail and learn from the failure. But like, just like all the influencers, like follow your passion. All that tells you is that the minute you find your passion, everything's going to be hunky dory. So like, if you fail, I guess that's not your passion. You should start again. And frankly, I think that it's, 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 it, it you know, it's about the thing that you want to let knock you down and get back up and knock you down and get back up and knock you down and get back up because that's the thing you're actually passionate about, right? Like you should, that's mm -hmm. what you should follow. So for me, it, I did not plan to be in the career that I'm in right now. The sort of author speaker world was 
if you would have told me 10 years ago that this is what I'd be doing, I would have laughed in your face. In fact, six years ago, when um, Tamsin Webster called me and said, I read a blog post you wrote and it would make a great TEDx, would you do it? My immediate response to her was, hell no, speaking in public that's terrifying. I don't want to do it. No, thank you. And my, um, my, my eldest son who was, uh, 13 years old at the time was in the backseat of the car and heard me take this call on speakerphone. And he was like, uh, mom, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Don't you always tell me I should do things that scare me. And don't you tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear. And don't you tell me if it doesn't challenge me, it doesn't change me. And I was like, yes, he's like, so what gives mom, huh? So six weeks later, there I am on the stage, TEDx. And TEDx Cambridge is is one of the big TEDx's. So it's at the Boston Opera House, 2,600 people, gold gilded walls, crystal chandeliers. And I walk out on stage and right into the center of the red circle. And I look up at the three mezzanines and I take a breath. And my sister who had flown in to watch said, I thought you were going to pass out in that moment. (laughs) I was like, so did I. Did you have the ice? (laughs) Yeah, I look at my sports bra and there was my ice. Um, So I nailed like 11 minutes of the talk. And then there's a moment where I like look off on stage left and you, if you know me, you know I have no idea what the next line is. And then I took a breath and I gathered it and I forgot the next line, but then I I remembered it again. And I, you know, it was good enough and it got some attention. And that attention got me offers to speak places. Mm-hmm. for money. And I was like, this is a job? <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Huh? So I got offered to go speak in Idaho and they were going to pay me $1,500. And I did not know it at the time, but I was also going to get a baseball cap with a potato on it and a <laughs> deck of playing cards that all had potato <laughs> recipes in it. So bonus for me. Um, and I never so I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. Um, and so th- th- my speaking got more attention and more attention and more attention. And I was invited to bigger and bigger stages. And then I found myself on stage with like people, like, you know, capital P people. And I yeah, was yeah. like, these people who are making a lot more money than I am, who do this full time, they all have books. I should get me one of them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I call up a publisher and I'm like, I'd like to do this. And I used a hybrid publisher. I'm like, I'd like to do this. I'd like to write this book. And he's like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. We'd love for you to write that. But first we're doing this series and we'd love for you to write a book for the series. And then once you do that, then you can, you know, write this other book you want to do. Okay. I was like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. <clears throat> I feel like I've already written that book about, you know, doing work that matters, work with purpose. And so I started writing it and I was like kind of butting heads with the editor. And I finally called him after a couple months and I'm like, you know what? You should fire me. This isn't working. My heart's not in that book. I don't want to write that book. I don't think the editor likes me very much. And he said, um, I agree. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Wait a second. Yeah. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to argue back. And he was like, no, no, no. But I think there's a bigger book in here. And you have this one section that you wrote that I think is actually where your heart really is. And we should do that book together. And that book should come out in hardback in the spring when big books come out. And I was like, wait, what? Wow. And so I wrote Limitless. That's how Limitless, what happened is I actually panicked in that moment and I called Clay A. Bear, who's so brilliant with, um, you know, book marketing and thinking through ideas. And I was like, what am I going to do? And he said, Lori goes, well, what do you want people to feel like after they've read the book? And I said, you know, I spent 20 years in executive search listening to people who were super successful be miserable. And I'm just so sick of everyone listening to everybody else define what success should be and who they should be and how they should be. And I just want them to stop listening to all those people and just live their own life and just be happy already. And he goes, so you want them to ignore everybody, carve their own path and live their best life? 
There's and some, so yeah, yeah. limitless, ignore every, you had to ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life was born. And I was like, Clay, I love you. You're amazing. This is incredible. And I need to hang up the phone and go write that book right fucking now. And I hung up the book and literally six weeks later, I pressed send on a final copy to the publisher. Wow. Okay. There's so, there's just so much there. there I'm, I'm going to back right up to Boston because, um, I, this show is all about mental fitness and, and giving people practices and, and everyone's different obviously, but I really try to give as many options. So one could yes. be like, that's the one that resonates with me. So let's back up to it's the first time you're doing a massive talk like this. I mean, I, the science is there, right? Or, or the stats are there that public speaking is like the most feared thing that-, that Terrifying. Right? People would that, rather that, die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, whether you're public speaking on a stage, whether you're, uh, you know, have social anxiety or you're on Zoom meetings all the time, you don't want to kind of, you know, throw in your, your, your video. I mean, there's so many different use cases, but like what, what did you do before the talk? So what I did before that talk is different than what I do before talks now. So I think sure. this is such well, a good question. Okay. Yeah. What I did before that talk was um, I was asked to do a talk. I was in the midst of a bit of an identity crisis because I just sold the search firm that I'd founded and run for 15 years to the team of women who helped me grow it. Okay. I started the blog because I was like, who am I when I'm no longer LGO CEO? Here's my business card, right? I had this and, and yeah. I, I'm going to interview you on my podcast. So we're going to have part one and part two here, but I'm going to talk to you about your moment of like identity and your, like, how do yeah. you shift identity and careers? So I'm excited for that talk, but I was having this like, oh my God, who am I? And at that moment I got the call from Tamsin to do this talk. And so I prepare for it. Like most people do when they're going to do some big talk, you watch a bunch of TEDx talks. So I learned to talk like mm -hmm. Ted. I learned to do the Ted thing. And Tamsin, <laughs> who was brilliant and so kind and so lovely and so smart about how to craft ideas, helped me craft my sort of spastic uh, thinking into an actual idea, but she did it in a way that she would give the talk. And then she trained me how to mm. do the talk and I was imitating her. So I memorized a script and I got out there on the stage and I talked like Ted. I talked like Tamsin. I didn't talk like me. And okay. I have to tell you that Mark, I can't even go back and watch that talk now because I'm not even me in that talk. Like it's so awkward and uncomfortable. And I could just now having being a public speaker for three years, I look back on and I'm like, who is that person? Yeah. So then I went and I did a whole bunch of speaking training and I learned a couple of things that were very useful. The first is that I'm funny. I didn't you realize are. I was funny. And the speaker that I, I, Michael Port, who was the person who helped train me, he was like, not a lot of women can get on stage and just be funny. I got on stage and I, and I started doing, you know, Limitless came out and I was going to be on stage and I was going to be warming up for Malala, like actual Malala in front of 2,500 people. And I was like, help, bad phone, help, help. You have to help me. So I flew to Pennsylvania. I sat with him for a day, him and his wife, Amy, sat with them for a day. And I'm, and I start giving the talk that I'm going to give for limitless. And he stops me like five minutes into it and he goes, what are, stop? He goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm giving my, I'm starting my speech. And he's like, don't no, no, mm, mm. I, I don't know what that was, but don't ever do any of that again. <laughs> I was oh, like, wow. what do you mean? And he's like, well, how would you tell the story at a cocktail party? So I was like, oh, well, mm -hmm. and then I launched into the story, you know, as if I, how I would tell it at a cocktail party. And he was like, yeah, do that you're funny. Go be funny. And I was like, I, I, I'm allowed to do that? And he was like, yes. So yeah. what I do now 
before I speak, when I think about mental fitness is I don't think, oh my God, I'm going to forget my line. Oh my God, I'm going to mess this up. Oh my God, what I'm going to do. I think about what, where is the audience now and where do they need to be when I'm done? What do they need to do differently, think differently, feel differently when I'm done? And I think about the stories that I'm going to tell. So I don't memorize a speech. I know that I've got this opening story and that closing story. And then it's like an accordion in between of the things that I want to insert into it. And sometimes the stories go into like how to be better salespeople. Sometimes it's about how to be, you know, more present parents. Sometimes it's about to be how to find your personal best and to like live in those moments of the pain cave. It, It really just depends. And so I can pick and choose from the accordion of all the stories that I have in my life, like you have in your life, like other people have in your life. Like I'm sure from personal Socrates, when you speak, you don't tell the story of every single person you interviewed, but you pick and choose the ones that you want to tell. So I, I think about the stories I want to tell. And then I remind myself that the reason that people want me on that stage is that they want me on that stage. So I make sure to bring the me who's there and there are, I am spastic and I'm full of moxie and I'm a big giant bags of insecurities that's wrapped up in a very athletic body. And so I get on stage and I like look super badass and I'm, you know, fit and I'm wearing fancy clothes and stiletto shoes. But then I tell the story about the first day of school when I felt like a complete failure and how everything went wrong and it's very personalizing. And so I sort of bring myself into the story and I remind myself. And the last thing I'll say about speaking is that people get it wrong. They think it's really scary to speak on stage, but it's actually scarier not to speak on stage. So that oh, moment yeah. where you <laughs> and then you just let that idea percolate all the way through the audience and you can feel it reverberating as you slowly walk across the stage and you hear the collective breathing of a thousand people in and out and in and out. And then somebody goes, yes, or they laugh or they like, go, hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, I I want more. Right. So it's not like the conventional knowledge, like you need to speak slower. No, you speak as fast as you speak. You just take pauses to let people catch up to you and let them have a dialogue. Their parts just quiet, but you have to be quiet enough for them to think it. And so that just like being fully comfortable in who you are and knowing that you got asked to be on that stage because you are you, and then letting the audience be there. They want you to succeed. They just want you to succeed. And if you walk on and you're somebody else, it doesn't feel right to you. Like we can't be someone else. We're going to mm-hmm. fail at it. We're going to be bad at it, but we can be great at being us. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I first wanted to say thanks for being here, and I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to let you know if you're interested, I just launched the Better Questions newsletter designed to provide you with a consistent 15-minute opportunity to pause and think, because a pause leads to clarity and operating with intention where we all win and thrive. The newsletter is short, simple, and practical, providing you with three quality reflective prompts and mental fitness twice a month. But as always, I'll adjust the frequency based on your feedback. Never forget, at any point, you are always one question away from a completely different life or outcome. You can sign up over at BehindTheHuman.com, which will also give you a free preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. BehindTheHuman.com. Now back to the show. It's so it's so important. I mean, I, I came across those those principles. Uh, I think I learned that from Larry King at one point when it was first getting going with the, with podcasting, and he obviously has such a unique style to interviewing. And I think he he left this in an interview at one point, just saying, 
that's me. You know, that's what, that's how I feel comfortable interviewing someone that you, you, you do, you figure out where you're comfortable. Um, but what strikes me in terms of everything that you mentioned there, you must have an incredible presence, like, like you being present with the audience, with the group, how do you how do you foster that mental clarity, right? Because you've you've got to be able to pick up those signs and, and to your point, like hear the whispers and know where to go next and know which story to pull. You can't do that when your mind is fogged and jammed with stuff. So I have um I have a real bone to pick with the um self-help industry of which I am a proud member, but the sort of motivational speaker, the speaking industry, all of it, there are so many people in this industry of ours who worry about getting the joke right or getting the Mm. bit right, or, you know, how do I, you know, how do I sell from the stage and all that stuff. And I want to say like, do you have your content right like there are people yeah. who will yeah, come up point. to me, right? Like how many times have you had somebody call you up and be like, I read the first half of your book and I quit my job. And I want to be like, read the second half. <laughs> Just like, yeah, keep, keep going. Keep going. Like maybe you should quit your job. I don't know. But like, are you going to leave your spouse? Are you going to start your own company? Are you going to decide to have kids or not have kids or, you know, like, you know, move out into the country? Like, I don't know. But like, read it all, like do it all. And I think that, um, I think that there's a couple things. I think there were a lot of people in our industry who, um, do what I call give book reports, right? That's a Scott McCain, uh, term book reports yeah. where they've read three books on the subject. And now they're like, I'm going to tell you how to go start your own business. And I, I want to get t-shirts printed up that say, um, before you tell me what to do, show me what you've done. And on the back, it's mm-hmm. like, hashtag, give me the PNL. <laughs> I just, there are just so many people who are leading yeah. in a direction where they haven't also not yet gone. And I have a problem with that. And then there is so much concern about getting the bit and the content, uh, getting the bit and the the joke and all of that. And I just, I think I am so in love with my content um, and, 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 and what my content can do for people because I've spent 30 years thinking about it. I have lived mm-hmm. it. I've experienced it. I have, I have, um, put it out in blog posts, in books, in, uh, newsletter forms, in speaking, in coaching, like all the things I've done. So it is tried and it's true. And it's, and, 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 you know, I like to do Q and a, um, on the, in, uh, from the stage, I like to do live coaching and bring people on in front of a thousand people and hand them the mic and be like, I don't know what you're going to tell me, but give them 60 seconds give me your problem. Let's get you further towards your solution. Yeah. So I, I, I love my audience because I see their potential. Like my, if I had any super, uh, human ability at all, it would be this. I am able to look at people and in rather short form, figure out what makes them great and then reflect that greatness back on them. So it's not that I can like say, you can go do these 17 things, but I can see what lights them up and what they want to do. And, and, and all I need to do is just hold a mirror up to them with that. And then when they see it, they can't unsee it. Yeah. So I think if you love the person that you're talking to, and that person can be one person or 10,000 people in an audience, you love them and you Mm -hmm. so want them to get to where they can get to that you can't help, but just want to have that conversation with them as if their very next move and their happiness depends on you helping them get there. And so I just, I don't know, I guess it's because I, I guess I just take my job really seriously. Well, I think, yeah, I would agree with that, but I think it, it comes right back to 
what we talked about in the opening about, you know, how world-class athletes just are able to hang on like that extra thread longer. And I think that's because they put in the training every day, right? And you're, it sounds like your training has been 30 plus years of writing and living that content that you're a master curator of finding the path that's going to, you know, help someone on the other side, right? And yeah. yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm just starting to get the taste of that with prompts. Mm-hmm. My world is just questions, but to your point, like on, on podcast for the book, it's so fun to just be able to jump around with prompts because everyone is different. Like, I, I don't see how you could show up with these canned solutions. <laughs> We're all different. <laughs> We're all different. But you know what is universal? This is the one thing I learned, which is universal. So as I mentioned, I bring people on stage often. And I'm like, here's the mic. I'm going to time you 60 seconds, right? Like, because, you know, the audience has to know you're taking care of them and somebody's not just going to talk for four hours. You know, tell us, tell us your problem. What is you? Everybody's question is different, and there there's always going to be a different answer. There's always and and I actually end up developing a lot of material live on stage because I like help people through things, and I'm like, oh, that's really good. I should remember that and write something about that. And so, but the one thing that I've realized is universal, which I didn't do when I first started doing this, is I used to just jump right and be like, great, that's a great problem. Let's here's a solution. Hmm. That doesn't work. I realized that doesn't work. What works is, wow, Mark, that's incredible. Just so brave of you to come up here and share that with us. Thank you so much. I really see you. I understand what you're going through. Oh, cupcake, that must be hard. Like whatever it is you need to give them, right? Like, like wow, that's very stressful. Boom. And they're like, yeah. And then you go, can we all give Mark a round of applause for just being whatever, excited, brave, you know, nervous, for coming up here and doing that? Yeah, everybody claps. And you're like, okay, let's brainstorm some things. What, like, let's, and then you ask them some questions back, right? Yeah. So this is why I love personal Socrates so much because giving someone an answer is never going to be as powerful as asking them questions and leading them to finding the answer themselves. And that I have found even though all the questions are different, all the problems are different, all the, you know, it, which is what makes it exciting and interesting for me, the universality of needing to be seen hmm. is just, that is something that holds us all together. Not just, and, and I don't mean loved, right? Like being yeah. seen and being loved are two very different things, but just being seen and just having company in your misery for that one moment before you, you know, are then able to, you know, get to a place where things are better. So cool. So when's the next talk? I mean, I want to, I want to participate in one of these. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, This might be a pivot or it might not be because, you know, you had brought up a couple topics before we hit record and there's one I really want to touch on, but I feel like there's probably a link to some of the stuff that you just mentioned. And it's just this whole thing that we're experiencing this great kind of, uh, what's the terminology again? I almost forgot it. The great, uh, the great resignation. Yes, the great resignation. Yes. I should know that by heart by the amount of <laughs> you know media clips that are coming out on this one. But like, I know you've you've spent time with the with information, the science, the data, and all of that. Like, how does this? How do you how do you see this linking to your work and everything yeah. you've just shared right now? Yeah. So um, everything that we're reading about the great resignation is like people just want to be paid more right? Go pay your people more. And I will say, if you're not paying a living wage, go fix that, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> go fix that, that right yeah. now. Step one. If you are, however, there are lots of other things to do. So 
my book Limitless came from 20 years of doing executive search, where it was my job to call people who were super, super successful in the work that they're doing and recruit them away to come work for my clients, which sounds like it would be a hard job, except for the fact that despite all that success, those people were not very happy. Right. So yeah. I would call the bold face names, the successful, the, the people who were like in the headlines and I, they, they would never, they would not have heard of me. They would not have heard of my firm. They might not have heard of the company that I was trying to recruit them away to. And they would always return my calls. Um, there were a handful of people that didn't, and I was always fascinated by them. And then I looked at my own career, right? Like leaving the Clinton White House halfway through, you know, leaving the big search firm, selling my own firm to the people who helped me found it when things were successful and I could just like hang out and ride off into the sunset. And I realized that that definition of success that was handed to us when we were young, whether it was like in high school or college, or if somebody said, pick a major, pick a trade, pick a career, pick a job. And we all went, okay. And they gave us a list. Um, and that list was like a, basically eight things. Uh, what is the uh, mission of the organization? Is the leader inspirational? Uh, are you going to, how many new skills are you going to learn? How broad is your impact going to be? Where's the job located? Um, how prestigious will it look on your resume, you know, for, for the next job? Um, how much money are you going to make? I missed one in there, but there, there are, there, that was the list. And conventional wisdom says the money is the top. It turns out that not a lot of us put money as the number one thing if we're going to prioritize that list. And that list, actually, how we prioritize it ourselves, changes every seven to 10 years as we go through different ages and different life stages. And so my book, Limitless, talks about, well, if success doesn't equal happiness, right, this list, you check all the boxes on the list, and why do you, like, they're all, boxes are all full, but why do you feel empty? What actually does bring happiness? And what I came to was this idea of consonance which is alignment yeah. and flow, right? It's when everything you do, like what you do matches who you are. And it's made up of four things, not this list of eight. It's made up of four things. Number one, calling. What is the gravitational force that gets you out of bed every single day? The business you want to build, the family you want to nurture, the cause that you want to solve, the leader who inspires you. Connection. Does your work actually connect to this calling? Like does what's on your email box and your to-do list and your calendar actually match what you care about? Um, if you called in sick tomorrow, would anybody care? Like would anybody notice? Would anybody care? Uh, number three, contribution. Does this work contribute to the kind of lifestyle that you want and the life that you'd like to lead? Are you manifesting your values on a daily basis? Is it giving you the career trajectory that you want? And last is control. How much personal agency do you have over how much you're able to control how much that work connects to your calling and how mm -hmm. much contributes to your life. And I, I, when my book came out, I created an assessment online at limitlessassessment.com that was uh, 67 questions. By the way, pro tip, 67 questions is not a good lead gen. <laughs> I'm not going to answer 67 <laughs> yeah. questions. So I, I went on like 150 podcasts, Good Morning America, Today Show, as you mentioned, all of that. And like, I don't know, 200 people took this. I think like 5,000 finished and 200 people finished, you know, finished yeah. it. And I was like, sad face, right? So there are 14 questions for each of the four C's of continents, plus a bunch of demographic uh, questions. And then about two months ago, and again, this is like in 2019. And then two months ago, I heard one of these book reporters pontificating about the great resignation and how it's all, you know, people just need to be paid more. And I'm like, that doesn't comport with 20 years of experience that I have in search. Yeah. And God, there should really be some data for this. And doesn't anyone know? And then I'm like, wait a minute. I wonder if anyone took that assessment. And so I opened up the assessment and it turns out that nearly 6,000 people have now taken that assessment over the course of the last three years. So I have like 300,000 bits of data that say things like 36.7% of workers say that pay is the number one thing that gives them happiness at work, right? That means two out of three workers don't. 
So what do they want? What's going to actually bring them happiness? Um, and it's things like they want inspiration from their leader. They want to feel purposeful mm-hmm. in their work. They want to understand how their work actually impacts the bigger picture. They want to understand why their role actually matters. They want to feel, you know, if you are um, Gen uh, Z, you want to feel important. If you're a millennial, you want to feel appreciated. If you're Gen X, you want some flexibility. If you're a boomer, you want to still feel relevant. So all the things that we're learning, in fact, it's not workers just wanting more money, it's leaders needing to learn how to lead and help incorporate those workers into the work that they're doing, into the work mm-hmm. of the company. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense hearing it back from you, obviously. Uh, and you know I, the, I, go sorry, ahead. The, the most interesting thing about this is that you would think like good leaders, good leaders inspire the workers to be their best, right? And bad leaders don't, and they bleed out workers fast, right? Like that seems logical. But it turns out that if you're a good leader and you don't actually have good relationships, like actual active relationships with your workers, that's just as bad and you're just at much risk as if you're a bad leader. So Mm -hmm. even good leaders who don't actively build relationships with their workers are still going to bleed out people. Yeah. So what are some questions then that we can take it on both sides, but people that are contemplating leaving a job and trying to, cause I think like what's happening just from, from my perspective without looking at data and just being someone that's, that's quite fascinating with reflection is that we've all entered this, this forced pause, right? Mm-hmm. We've paused the autopilot of life, which then gives some space to actually think, right. And, and thinking and, and, and the it's pause, dangerous. I think it's dangerous, <laughs> but I also think it's, it's like the long lost superpower that, mm-hmm. If that, that's my work, obviously, to help people slow down and think. Um, and that's happening now. And then now people are asking questions and realizing, oh, shit, you know, this isn't actually fulfilling or I'm waking up more stressed than uh, the days that I'm happy or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. But it, are you seeing like, are there any questions or any things that people can think about if they're going through that? And then get, I guess on the flip side for leaders out there, what questions should they be thinking about to to adjust. Yeah. So I would say, so first of all, there is the limitless assessment at limitlessassessment.com, but I also realized a better lead gen would be four questions, <laughs> which are at <laughs> myfourquestions.com. Okay. And I will tell you what they are. Um, but the the question that's not on there, which is the bigger overarching question, which is the question of should you ask yourself these questions, is when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going back to the life that I really want? Oh, so powerful. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, that answer is a resounding hell no, which Mm -hmm. is why we're seeing the resignation. And it's not even just a resignation. I mean, it's a great reshuffle. It's not like people are quitting and then just like, you know, moving out to a farm and, you know, growing their own food. Like people are getting other jobs. They just, they realize that the jobs they're in aren't making them happy. So the questions that I would ask myself are, um, is the work that I'm doing the driving force that gets me up in the morning and am I excited to do it each day? Number one. Um, is my is what's in my inbox, my calendar, my to-do list actually connected to the life that I want to live? Number two. Number three, does my work allow me to live the lifestyle that I want, build the career trajectory that I need, manifest my values for the community that, or the causes that I love? And then number four, do I feel like I'm in control of how my hustle impacts my earning, my career growth, and my flexibility? Mm, and I it. think those four questions, if you agree with all of them, great. If you don't, then, you know, 
you've got some other questions to ask yourself. But yeah. I think, uh, you know, a lot of times we think that we have to have 100% of all of these things. So for example, if you say, actually, my work, it's not really the driving force that gets me up in the morning every day, and I'm not excited about it, but it does allow me to have the lifestyle that I want. It could be that you don't care. That's fine. Yeah. Like we have this idea <clears throat> that we all have to have purpose, like writ yeah. large with the words higher or lofty in front of it. And the truth is your purpose may be curing cancer and that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But your purpose also may be getting out of debt so that your children can make decisions that you didn't have the flexibility to live or to make. Or maybe your purpose is just buying a Maserati and a beach house. Like, I don't know. I don't care. Your purpose is just your purpose. And the problem is that we give votes in our lives to people who shouldn't even have voices, which leads me to another question, which is who's helping you define success? Yeah, that is good stuff. <laughs> like we have a lot of people who help us define success. And a lot of those people are our family and they should be our family, right? That combination yeah. of friends and family. Cause you know, when I, I ask my parents for advice about stuff and I love my parents and my parents love me. But the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 years old and I put empty cartons of milk back in the refrigerator and I left dirty socks in the living room floor. And I left the car on fumes, you know, when I came home from breaking my curfew on Saturday night, when I yeah. told them I was dropping out of law school to join a presidential campaign and I was going to go work in the white house. If he won, they thought I was high. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so like how, what kind of advice are they going to give me? They love me, but they don't know me. So a lot of times we have like the people who are defining success are these people who love us, but don't know us, or they're people who are jealous of us and they're, you know, determining our rise and looking at it only through their fall, or maybe they're afraid and they're like, oh, Mark, you can't do that. That's too scary. And what they really mean is, oh, Mark, I can't do that. I'm too scared. Or maybe it's like the Kardashians or something and they're like infiltrating our brains. And I just like, we have to think about who are the, and what are the inputs and whether or not those impacts are actually in consonance with what we actually want. Yeah, totally. Well, I think- Especially when we made that decision when we didn't have a frontal lobe, right? Like 17, 18, 19 years old, somebody's like, pick this path, pick this major. And you're like, okay. And then you're 35, 45, 55. And you're like, why am I not happy? It's like, because you made this decision before you literally had the brain capacity. You did not have the fully developed brain to make a good one. Yeah. Well, and from that point until up until now, let's say you've also just been, I mean, society's popped you into this mold and jammed more and more things into your mind and so forth. Like you just don't even have time to, to sit back and actually think. Yeah. People and, are like, why right? do I get my best ideas in the shower? And I'm like, because that's the only time you're not looking at your phone. Yeah. No, <laughs> no it's so true. Or on a run or I mean, it's like yes. we, we hear these stories all the time. And I think for me, at least it, it, it all backs up to the opening prompt of this show, like, who are you? And and then I think the follow-up is like, who are you striving to become? Like, what's mm-hmm. like, where do you want to be? And maybe you're exactly where you want to be, but normally people are striving for something or whatever. And then to do an audit uh, to your point, like that, the people that are surrounding you, the, how you eat, the, your mental nutrition, like what you're either being fueled to support that next person or not. You know what I think away, is right? fascinating. You know, we all heard the study about how like you're you are the average of the five people closest to you, right? And like there are yeah. studies that like if the five people closest to you are obese, you're more likely to become obese. And then years ago, this is pre-pandemic, but I think we all now are like, yep, yeah, that I that rings true. The five people who are closest to you, even on social media, right? So oh, if the yeah. five people closest to you on social media are ultra marathon runners. There is a high likelihood that in the next five years, you're going to run a marathon, right? Like you are going to, yeah. the, the, even, even if they are not physically proximate to you, 
so, you know, those are like, that's the question, right? Like who, who determines who's helping you to find success? Who, whose opinions are you taking? Um, I think those are so important. Like who are the people who are closest to you? And, and, you know, I, I think that if you don't do that audit, as you said, I mean, what a great, what a great exercise. I mean, I think a lot of us, um, at least in the United States, had an ability to do that audit just over the last several years between like the politics and the anti-vaccines <laughs> and like all yeah. the, there. You learned things about people that you yeah. did not necessarily want to know and that you cannot unknow. Right. Yeah. And that for me was clarifying. You know, a, a dear friend of mine, Jackie Summers, likes to say that crisis doesn't change you. It reveals you. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, yes. Totally. And you got to do that audit. Yeah. I mean, either you're asking the questions or not, right? Because then I think like the only time I want to be on autopilot is when the, the pilot's flying the plane from, you know, <laughs> right. like New York to LA or something. I'll take a bit of that. Um, but other than that, I mean, anytime we're on autopilot in any other scenario, usually doesn't lead to the like the greatest thing. I mean, you can go into a supermarket. If you're on autopilot there, you're not coming out with fruits and vegetables. You're coming yep. out with all the shit at the end, end caps and in the middle of the superstore, right? So it's just, yeah, I, I mean. And it's the same with like your social media feed. Like if you do not go in and unfollow and highlight and curate your feed, you get whatever the algorithm wants to give you. And the algorithm does not want to give you anything that's going to be useful to you. Yeah. Right. The algorithm wants to like, if it bleeds, it leads. It wants to give you stuff that scares you. The stuff that's addictive, the stuff that brings you back for more. And, uh, you know, just, just a, a, a friend of mine, a fellow Canadian, Leanne Davey, uh, told me a practice that she uses for LinkedIn. She said she has actually, she has a, a word document, um, that has the, the like 20 people who's ideas she thinks are great ideas. And every Monday she goes in and she just like clicks on the link to their LinkedIn profile and just looks at what their latest post is. And that's how Ooh. she interacts with LinkedIn. So rather than just sitting there and just getting all the feed, she's like, she looks at it and she actively comments. And as a result, she not only gets edified, she not only gets smarter and, mm -hmm. and more optimistic and happier by reading their posts, she's actually developed relationships with all of them where now they are actively commenting on her post. So it's good for her business. Yeah. It's also just been good for her mind and her heart and her soul. Yeah. I love that. What a beautiful way to, you know, intentionally use, um, social media and, and let's just say content in general, because I think going back to the, you know, the stat of, of, of who you surround yourself, um, like the impact of, of those, those top five people. What's beautiful about today's world is that we actually have access to really anyone because yes. of that presence. But with that, when uncontrolled, like you get to your point, you get sucked into the infinity scrolls and stuff like that. And then you get into a whole other, other world. So if you kind of marry up the thought process of, I don't know, I don't know who it is, but you know, pick the people that really inspire you, give you that good mental nutrition that you're learning, that you're primed and you're ready to go um, with a practice like from your fellow Canadian or my, or I should say my fellow Canadian. Um, I mean, that's a winning formula. It's awesome. Yeah. On I mean, that. Go ahead, there's Laura. so there's so many studies that talk about mental fitness and you know my grandmother was learning how to play blackjack when she was 93 when she had a fatal stroke right like you just like keeping your mind sharp i'm currently yeah. addicted to wordle like i mean it's like i am i am i i love like little games like that but i think it is when we are tired and when we are scared it is so easy to go on autopilot and to just be yeah. fed what the algorithm gives us and so just thinking about you know just being being more active in our lives, like taking the, taking the driver's seat. I mean, I just, I, I, we get 
but one juicy go round, you know, on planet yeah. earth. And I just, I don't, I don't want to miss anything. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I'm going to start wrapping up to respect, respect your time, but I do want to ask about any of your non-negotiables when it comes to mental fitness or any of your practices or rituals, like the things that keep your mind healthy and primed and so forth. Like what's worked for you? Yeah. I mean, I am, um, I am unmoored without a goal. Like I need to have, I think nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, and that deadline for me has to be something that is intimidating and scary and also really exciting, you know, that I, that I will want to have done. I think that we get what I think what we get wrong is we think that confidence is something people are born with and confidence actually comes from competence like putting one foot in front of the other and doing the 5k or doing the miles yeah. like oh i could do a 5k like i didn't wake up one day and see the head of school and be like i could run a marathon i like put one foot in front of the other and then i was like oh my god i can actually set bigger and bigger and bigger goals and so for me like constantly having a goal whether it's i'm gonna publish the next book in april of 2023 so backing out what do i need to do in by january 2023 by you know fall of 2022 by summer 2022 yeah. this month this week etc um and with fitness stuff like having a goal like i'm i'm working on a calendar challenge now with a, a rowing friend of mine where we're erging 1k for each date of the month so january 1st is 1k january 2nd is 2k january 3rd is 3k sounds really easy till you get to like 25 26 <laughs> no 27 kidding. 28 all the way to 31 the in a row 485,000 meters in uh in, in in the month of january but having, you know, having these sort of larger goals and then kind of breaking them down into smaller things is for me a way to always be working towards something and striving and pushing myself out of my comfort zone and sort of getting, just being, being accountable to having someone else forces me to stay in that pain cave just a little bit longer. Okay. And when is your mind the most quiet? Uh, that is a, Good question. Um, my mind is probably the most quiet when I'm actually on the water in a boat because, okay. uh, like, because as a rower, I'm a competitive rower, and when you're rowing, you are you are rowing along with seven other in my case, women, and you're like, you know, chunk, swish, chunk, swish, chunk, swish over and over and over again. And I remember my very first race, we were 750 meters into a thousand meter course. And I had never felt my heart rate as high as it was. Like I could literally feel my chest expanding. I'd never felt that feeling before. And I remember thinking, chunk, swish, chunk, swish. This is interesting. Swish, chunk, swish. I wonder what happens now. Chunk, swish. And and you can't stop because if you stop, you, you know, you get hit in the in the ribs by a by an oar <laughs> handle and you break your ribs and you get ejected out of the like the, you get thrown out of the boat just because sheer force <laughs> of physics and you drown. So I'm like, well, I I don't will my heart explode? Am I gonna die? Are <laughs> yeah. we gonna win? I wonder what happens now. So there are things that you do that have to be like I took up tennis years ago because I was like, if you don't pay attention, you get hit in the face with a ball, right? Like mm-hmm. just when you have to just be so physically present that yeah. you cannot be thinking about anything other than the thing you are doing, I think it's the place where my mind is clearest. And interestingly enough, it's in the hours after that, when I come home, I take a shower, I have my green tea, and I sit at my desk where I am my most creative. Yeah, well, so I learned something super interesting about that when I, I interviewed Stephen Kotler from the Flow Research Collective. And 
he had shared some data that I wasn't aware of that, because it sounds like you're, you're definitely probably entering flow states in, in those s- situations yes. like most athletes do. Um, and he said that the research supports that you are more creative, which we, d- what you're describing after a flow state, but up until three days, yes. like the, the lasting effects of that. Um, I didn't know that. And I think that's what, what I like about when, when I learned that information or, or he shared that, that data was that it, I think it could help us give ourselves a little bit more space feeling unproductive, let's say, mm-hmm. to bring in things like rowing or for me, it's, you know, biking and snowboarding right now. And like, make sure those things are in your schedule as you can, obviously, but knowing that actually you're going to get other benefits from that as well. Yes. And it's, it's going to affect your work and whatever, whatever it is that uh, that supports your, your profession, right? Have you read, um, Rahaf Harfouche's Hustle and Float? No, I haven't. Okay. Another fellow Canadian for you, Hustle and Float. Um, the the name of the book comes from what what she does. She basically takes down the entire, like, uh, working industrial complex and the nine to five and the 40 hour work week and like where that all came from and why it doesn't make any sense for people who are creative. Um, and the title Hustle and Float comes from this idea of white water rafting, where if you are hustling hard the entire time, it's exhausting and you don't enjoy it. And if you're floating on a placid river the entire time, it's boring and you don't enjoy it. But mm. if you have a little hustle and you have a little float, actually, it's pretty amazing. And so she actually creates her entire working day, week, month, all of it, her schedule around this idea that there's going to be some hustle time and some yeah. float time because it's in the hustle where you get the work done and you're productive, but it's in the float where everything alchemizes. So cool. Love it. So you should talk to her. You should yeah, I, I wrote that down. I am definitely going to uh, dive in. Okay, last question for you. Just what what makes you smile these days? <laughs> um, what makes me smile these days? Okay, this is kind of a, um, this is kind of sappy. Uh, my eldest son is a freshman in college. And um, when he was... I don't know, like 10 or something. I posted a photo on Facebook of me hugging him and I wrote some statement like uh, a letter to my future daughter-in-law. I hate you already. (sighs) And um, all of my fellow moms were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to lose him. You're going to lose him. It's going to be terrible. And one woman wrote, actually, you're wrong. When your son brings someone home who he loves and you see the person he is with her and the person she brings out in him, you will love her and you will love him even more. And my, my son and his girlfriend are doing the uh, first couple of weeks of uh, the spring semester of college from our house because um, their school is online for two weeks and seeing the him he is through her makes me smile right now. Oh, wow. I mean, you're bringing tears to my eyes so that people can't see it because we're not recording video, but there's, there's watery eyes here and I can't, I can't think of a better way to end than with a full heart. So thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you for everything that you do and for you bringing your awesome personality and, and, and humor to stages around the world, whether in person or, or virtual, because there's just so many people out there uh, benefiting from you showing up every day. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I'm excited for part two where I ask you all the questions that I want to ask you. So if you've listened to this, you should come listen to me interviewing Mark. Yes. I mean, we're <laughs> spoiled. It's, uh, it's an afternoon together. Thanks, everyone. 